know that most of the time on this podcast, we talk about places all around the globe. Today, we're looking inward. We're talking about my home country, Canada. Today, Alpaca Pals, we are staying local. On the surface, Canada does seem like a pretty great place. And let me tell you, it is. I feel incredibly privileged to have been born into a Canadian nationality and to have benefited from being raised here. But my experience is not universal. Canada has a very dark history of colonialism and evidence of this history persists today. The indigenous population of Canada continues to experience systemic marginalization, prejudice, and racism. Today we're chatting with Ryan McMahon. He's a Canadian writer, comedian, creator, and podcaster known for hosting the Canadaland series Thunder Bay, which covered the city of Thunder Bay's high rate of hate crimes and homicides against Indigenous youth. Thanks for joining us, Ryan. Yeah, thanks for having me. So we invited Ryan on the show because we wanted to delve into the lack of Indigenous representation in the Canadian tour- tourism industry. Canada is known for its beautiful mountains, wild nature, hiking, adventure, cosmopolitan cities, and so much more. But what's lacking from our tourism is Indigenous representation. So Ryan, the National Post published an article a couple months ago, Alpaca Pals, it's linked in the show notes of this episode. And in it, Bert Archers argues that Canada has a tourism problem that can only be fixed by embracing indigenous culture. The article argues that Canada's branding as a destination is completely void of indigenous culture and that incorporating indigenous culture would boost tourism, support indigenous communities, and improve relations between the settlers and indigenous communities. So to start, I was hoping you could tell us a bit about your indigenous heritage and your identity, and then we can gather your perspective on indigenous representation in the Canadian tourism industry. Sure. Mojo Nendinoe Maganaduk, Gana Moshum, Wab Makwan, Indijnakaz, Makwan Dodem, Kuchiching, and Donji. What I've just said in my language is I've introduced myself, the name that I was given through ceremony, um, and I've placed myself uh, territorially where I come from in northwestern Ontario in Treaty 3 territory. I'm from a community called Kuchiching First Nation, which is a small uh, First Nation on the shores of uh, Rainy Lake, and I'm Bear Clan. And uh, for me, as an Indigenous person uh, in in uh, what we call Canada, yeah, I don't feel I don't feel as though I mean, not just in the tourism context, but in the in the general context, you know, Indigenous peoples, uh, our worldviews, our histories, and sort of our side of the story is is represented uh, anywhere, and. You know, luckily in 2015, Justin Trudeau and the federal liberals kind of inherited uh, this moment that we're calling reconciliation. And in in such, um, things are slowly starting to change. We are starting to see a little bit more recognition. We are starting to see uh, a little bit more inclusion in some spaces. And, uh, and for me as a father uh, to two young um, uh, Ojibwe girls, that's something that I'm, I'm, you know, excited about and, um, 
and you know it's it's been a, a a long time coming i would say though that you know uh here in canada if we were to celebrate the richness of cultures and languages and diversity uh that we have amongst the indigenous nations uh from coast to coast to coast man what an exciting place you know it would be and and i'll sort of unpack that a little bit later cuz i know we're going to talk about this quite a bit but you know every every kid in high school dreams about filling up a backpack full of t-shirts and euros and condoms and uh, getting a train pass to go across Europe to discover themselves before they move on to the next chapter of their lives. But I argue that that same diversity, the same type of celebration of food and languages and history uh, is right here uh, within these borders. And so, you know, you want to talk, when you want to talk about the diversity of experiences and cultures and languages and foods, um, we haven't even started to scratch the surface yet in the indigenous context. So what do you think about the argument that indigenous culture should be shared with tourists? And as an indigenous Canadian, do you think it's important to share indigenous history with tourists? Well, I think, I think the question would be why, you know, what, why, why indigenous cultures shared with tourists and, and, and how, and if it's to have us dress up in our Indian clothes and sing our songs uh, for them uh, in our war paint, then absolutely not. Um, but if it is to correct the record, if it is to share our humanity, and if, if it is to share our, our side of what we enjoy in, in this place we call Canada, then absolutely. Um, I think one of, the, one of the real challenges that we see with with um, tourists and and Canadians for that matter experiencing indigenous cultures for the first time is there is still a lot of um, there's still a lot of inhumane treatment when it comes to the way we are treated by people that don't know us and so for example you know at the, at the, at a powwow uh, I MC powwows I've been MCing powwows for for many years and and when I'm at a powwow I, I consistently have to remind visitors and guests that. They are not to walk up to dancers and touch their regalia. They're not costumes, they're regalia. Um, that they are not to grab the hair of men or women that are dancing. I mean, there, there's still something that, there's still a disconnect between our humanity and and the visitor. And so, you know, I don't know why or how that is. I think, I mean, I could go on a, you know, a 45-minute academic rant about... Um, uh, how we could connect, you know, Christopher Columbus, Manifest Destiny, Terra Nullius, and sports mascots to the lack of humanity that people uh, really see Indigenous peoples with. Um, but I'll save you the, the rant because the podcast isn't that long and just say that this has been a problem since um, since settlers started coming over to Turtle Island. And so we really need to, if we are going to embrace tourism as a form of economic development and as a, a good opportunity for reconciliation, it has to be under indigenous terms and it, and it has to be done in really, really close partnership. And, and like anything under the guise of reconciliation, we have to take the long way there. And so, you know, we have to take our time. We have to make mistakes. We have to figure out the best way forward rather than just fast forward to the celebration um, and to the easy stuff. Uh, we have to sit down and chat with each other. And I think, I feel as though a lot of the work that is happening right now uh, with the Indigenous Tourism, Tourism Association of Canada, uh, which is a nonprofit that is committed to growing and promoting 
um, the tourism, uh, indigenous tourism industry in Canada. I feel like a lot of that is happening now uh, in communities, which is exciting. Um, but it's not as simple as inviting tourists onto the reserve. There's, there's a lot of work that has to be done first. Yeah, um, going back to what you said about there being a disconnect or there would be a disconnect between humanity and the visitor. Um, now that I think about it, like there's such disconnect between settler communities and indigenous people already. And so when, wouldn't it be better for us to start with creating that connection before we expand to tourism? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I'm going to guess here, um, Aaron, but you've traveled much more than me uh, abroad, and 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 um, I just think this is this is uh, sort of a global phenomenon. This is people at their worst, where we we often don't think about our footprint. And this is why I appreciate your podcast: is we don't often think about the footprint we leave when we travel. And indigenous peoples always bear the brunt of the ugly stuff, right? The the garbage we leave behind when we travel. Um, the low wages that often people are paid uh, to clean our hotel rooms, things like that. I mean, so, so you know, this is, this is not just a, a Canadian problem here in the, the tourism industry. I think it is a, it, it is a question that all travelers um, need to ask themselves. And I, I think being mindful when we travel and visit is a really, really important thing. And, and again, this is why I enjoy the work you're doing as you are sort of zooming out and zooming in and having those really important conversations. But yeah, I mean, for sure, we, we have work to do here in Canada <laughs> before we start inviting a bunch of strangers in here to experience our dysfunction. I don't think, I don't think we want the world to see us at our worst. Um, however, I think that would get things moving uh, more quickly if, they, if, if the world really, <laughs> really knew the truth about where we were at. Yeah. And you make me think of like my own travels and the times that I've spoken with Europeans or Australians or people from all over the globe. And they're talking to me about how incredible Canada is. And they have zero clue about what's actually happening. And they have very, very little knowledge of of the indigenous heritage of Canada. And I always find that so shocking that there's so little information beyond like the borders of Canada itself on a global yeah. scale of like even indigenous presence here. Yeah. And we really have to look at, you know, uh, uh, you know, we call this reconciliation or whatever we, you know, whatever buzz decolonization, whatever the buzzword is or becomes, I just call it the re-education. So we're going through a time now where we are re-educating ourselves. We're re-educating our racist uncle Larry, uh, at Thanksgiving dinner, uh, our, our, you know, young kids right now are, are experiencing a full curriculum overhaul that is, is considering and, and, um, the indigenous perspective in histories and, and, and other, um, other subjects. And so, you know, it, it, we really are entering into a new time. I, and I believe this, I'm not just blowing sunshine up your ass. I, I think 30 or 40 years from now, they will write books about this time. And, and I do think we are experiencing a change and we're all very lucky to live through it. And they will write books about this time. And what we have to determine as, as citizens of, of what I do believe to, to be a great country, we have to figure out which chapter you want your name to be found in. And, and for me, doing the work so that my kids don't have to and being a part of the conversation is just is is an, is an exciting thing it's a frustrating thing if you follow me on twitter you know <laughs> you know how frustrated i can get yeah um but man we're in it and and for better or worse we 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 are in a time of change and and i feel that change and i'm i'm you know dare i say 
um, hopeful and 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 really excited by by the work that we can do together to make things better because yeah things are shit okay there is just a national inquiry into missing and murdered indigenous women do tourists want to come over here and discover that no they don't you know we don't clean drinking water on reserve well come and come in um and uh, explore the reserves we got a two-hour hike bring your own water because there's none to drink over here you know, do they want to discover that? No, they don't. I mean, we, we have real problems in this country. And, and while we are celebrated on the world stage, I think m- more and more of us know what those problems are and what the challenges are. And, and we're lucky enough to, again, live through a time where we are being called to change it. And I do believe slowly we, you know, we are. Because mm-hmm. one of the reason I, reasons I wanted to touch on this subject was because when I was thinking about this lack of representation in quote unquote the branding of Canada as a nation, it seems to me that perhaps incorporating indigenous culture into our national identity through tourism could signal a national celebration of indigenous culture because then we're saying outwards like this is what we're proud of. We're proud of our indigenous heritage. And that's why that's what got me thinking about this this episode in total. I think I think you're I think you're bang on there with 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 your thoughts. I think that there there can and will be a time where that may be more acceptable. I'm just uh, I'll just sort of get, you know there's inside the circle conversations for indigenous folks and then there's outside. The, I'll bring you inside the circle right now. <laughs> okay. um, Canada 150 is an example of a time where people were going oh well include the natives because they're here. And it's our birthday, and so we should invite some of them too. Well, that backfired miserably because a lot of Indigenous folks were going, I'm not coming to the birthday party, and if I do come to the birthday party, I'm going to spill some red wine on your white carpet, you know, because it's really hard to celebrate a country and a moment and a time when there are more kids in child welfare than there were at the height of residential schools, you know. So there are real social problems here that when we throw a celebration it's it's always it always has to be with a right now it has to be with an asterisk and and frankly those that are celebrating really need to be really careful about who they invite because not everyone's ready to celebrate and and there are a lot of really really hurt people out there that are that are suffering and at our and are suffering at the hands of a government in a in a in a colonial legacy really of of government in action that um, really don't feel like celebrating. So it is complicated. Um, I, w- I will say, again, you know, even just last night I was watching um, um, the Toronto Maple Leafs and one of the commercials for Hometown Hockey, which is, a, you know, a Rogers TV show that celebrates hockey across Canada. They have a commercial and the, basically the, the, the commercial runs and the angle of the camera is pointing down at everybody's feet. And they just run through these different types of shoes and skates. And in the commercial, I saw a pair of moccasins. And I thought, wow. See, even just that, like, I'm 40. Even just that little bit of recognition made me so happy. Like, it can bring tears to my eyes right now just talking about it. Because you just, you finally see yourself represented. You see a glimpse of yourself on TV. It is so powerful. And, and that's where we're at. And, and, you know, to be recognized like that and to, to see yourself 
in a stupid little hometown hockey commercial is such a big moment for me. Tara Sloan, who hosts hometown hockey two years ago while hosting from Vancouver, British Columbia at the start of the, the telecast said, we are here live from unseated, um, unseated territory, uh, shared amongst the three bands here in Vancouver. And it was just like, I, I DM'd her on Twitter right away. And I was like, you can't, you don't understand how massive that is for us to be recognized like that. And for you to, to mention that you are on unceded territory on hockey night in Canada is it moves the chains. It changes what we expect. And, and through these types of changes, these little incremental changes, I think we will get there where we can celebrate indigenous cultures in the context of Canada. Right now, I'm not sure that we're there yet. Mm-hmm. And I know what you mean about um, the challenge of recognizing that change is very, very slow. And I've noticed like in the course of your own lifetime, it's really hard to acknowledge that things are changing. Just for context, I studied women's studies in university and during the course, I found myself feeling very low a lot of the time and often needed to be reminded, no, like change is happening. It's just very, very slow. And it's easy to forget that these tiny little changes that we see happening actually represent on a larger scale progress. Yeah. And I do want to say, um, because of my age, I, you know, and I grew up sort of a politically active young person who, you know, was on youth councils and would do, you know, bake sales to be able to take little trips, uh, uh, with my youth council friends. And, um, the, the conversations young people are having today in this country are wildly different than the the ones I had when I was a kid. Um, and they expect, um, leaders to think about decolonization. They expect, leaders to continue to push forward on reconciliation to make space for indigenous and non-indigenous youth to come together to learn about these things um, mutually. And so we are, we are in a different time. And that's where, I mean, you know, I've said some of the, I've identified some of the hard things uh, so far in our conversation, but I do want to point towards that as sort of the, you know, the pathway forward. And as far as that goes, you know, I, I, I have completely removed myself out of the youth space out of, you know, I'm, I, I, first of all, definitely aged out of it. But second of all, feel more as a mentor, as a mentor, I can be a lot more effective and mentorship is about listening and kind of helping point people in the right direction. And I know where we've been in this country. Um, and now I'm just listening for where young people want to go. And so that's where, that's where I know we're in good hands in this country. I, I really do feel that way. Yeah, that's nice to hear. Um, So one example I wanted to bring up was New Zealand. Um, I was researching what has happened in New Zealand in terms of how they represent the Maori, um, specifically through tourism. So the Maori are New Zealand's non-European settlers, and they're integral to the nation's international identity. So for example, Air New Zealand has stylized Maori fern symbol as its corporate logo. Um, and every passenger is welcomed on board each flight with a kiora, which is Maori for hello. So New Zealand has really taken steps to prioritize visitor engagement with local culture, and this funds its Maori tourism agency with $1.5 million a year. 
Um, and the payoff has been huge. New Zealand's Maori-based tourism is now worth $5 billion a year. Um, and it's perhaps not entirely coincidental that their place on the Tourism Council ranking is 58, which is, which is 102 spots ahead of Canada. So clearly, that's that's kind of shocking, <laughs> actually. It's really shocking, yeah. Where 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 is Canada on that that ranking? Do you know the number? Uh, I guess that would be a hundred and sixty, huh? Which is pretty low. <laughs> seems 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 pretty low. Yeah, um, and I just found this interesting because, like, clearly there are benefits for the country economically, but it's also benefiting the communities as well economically and this is one of the struggles we're seeing in Canada is that like indigenous communities need funding and so do you think that jumping forwards with addressing tourism would help or benefit these communities in getting them like literally the basic needs that they need like water yeah I think um I think I think there's a there's a couple of different ways to answer that for me I think that um that should we look at um, the Maori example uh, in New Zealand? We're, we're, we can point to a lot of the success. I think that you know the the five billion dollar a year tourism uh, industry in New Zealand is is impressive. And you know, I I do have uh, a lot of Maori friends uh, over in New Zealand that you know that even in their um, if it's not in their day jobs, they're sort of their nighttime gig is to do cultural presentations or to take people out on the water um, and to do to do things in villages uh, with with uh, tourists. And so uh, it, it, when we talked about doing this episode, I, I actually reached out and said, was well, this still true? Is this what you're doing? And so so the, the impact is 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 really, really profound on the ground locally. Um, there are, of course, problems with the way contracts are given, et cetera, and that all of that is political, and that's above sort of this conversation really is, you know, how and who lands specific contracts for specific jobs inside of the tourism industry in New Zealand. I think that kind of complication and, and um, that, that sort of, uh, I won't call it nepotism because I don't know it's, if it's nepotism, but those kind of relationships exist, you know, everywhere. And so I would say that, New Zealand sort of has won the geographic lottery in in a way. It's hard to get to New, Ze New Zealand, but it's definitely a destination. I mean, the beaches, um, the food, again, the culture, I think is something to be, is something really, really to be desired. Um, we have some beaches in Canada. <laughs> We're not quite the, the warm weather destination that New Zealand is. So I think, I think by comparison, it's, it's, it's difficult to do, but I think where we can compare is the way the countries have embraced in the indigenous culture specifically. And I'm, I'm so impressed by, by the work that has happened in New Zealand and it really shows a pathway and, 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 you know, a way forward in terms of the way, um, the, the, the Maori language, um, is, is celebrated inside of New Zealand, the way the language is funded in New Zealand. Um, it's one of the reasons why you will hear the language spoken by, by non-Maori people in New Zealand, um, because it is inside the schools, etc. And so they've done a lot of work outside of the tourism context to ensure that the indigenous cultures are found locally and territorially and regionally. 
And, you know, there are a number of, of, of ways that that could happen here in Canada, but we're just so far away from that. I mean, I, I, I didn't want to come onto your podcast and be Debbie Downer, but we are a long way away from being able to do that in Canada. And I feel like it happens in pockets and there are definitely pockets in this country that are more healthy in regards to the relationship with indigenous people. There are pockets in this country that have done more in terms of um, uh, education inside of this country. I think of Saskatchewan, Saskatchewan, everyone thinks of Saskatchewan as this sort of backwards kind of racist place. And while it certainly has its problems um, and I would like to highlight those problems, um, Inside of the education system, when you talk to a young per- young person, they can tell you about Treaty 6. They can say, we are in Treaty 6 territory. And and I'm always shocked by that. A, a young non-Indigenous person saying, well, I grew up in Treaty 6, or I'm from Treaty 6. And I say, holy shit, that's great. You know, so those, those, those the success will come from more than just the tourism industry. It, it really has to be a comprehensive... Um, it really has to be a comprehensive plan to ensure indigenous folks are, are present <clears throat> in, in all aspects and realms of life. Um, the last thing I'll say, and I know I'm talking a lot, I apologize. What I'm afraid of in regards to indigenous uh, tourism in Canada, should we, we look at models like the Maori and others that have really embraced indigenous cultures is, is where the money will go to. Um, because under the Indian Act, First Nations are limited as to how they can create own source revenue. And when they do create own source revenue, it gets really, really complicated. And so, you know, I'm curious to see what sort of developments will be made in terms of how um, Indigenous tourism uh, efforts are funded inside of Canada and who will reap the rewards. Because certainly Canada has, um, Canada has a lot of potential in terms of growing this market, who reaps those rewards and, and how that money is, is, is spent, invested, or uh, who makes that money is a, is, a, is a really big question because of the Indian Act. Right. So based on the Indian Act, then, if it, within an Indigenous community they receive funding to start like a tourism agency, does the Indian Act then limit the amount that they can profit off that? Well, it's, again, depending on how you go about setting up the business. So to set up a business, you, you would you do it as a nonprofit uh, and start like a nonprofit organization or community organization that runs the, the businesses? Is it a for-profit business, sole proprietorship? Is it a guy that wants to take you out on his dog sled team? Um, there's a bunch of questions, but generally speaking... Um, to invest, to, to have Canada invest in a business, you have to be able to provide some equity. Uh, a lot of people that, that get loans to start businesses uh, for themselves put their homes up for, for, as equity. Um, you don't own homes on First Nations. Uh, that's against the law under the Indian Act. And so getting the equity um, needed uh, to start these businesses and to run these businesses is, is a really, really complicated thing. I can tell you as an indigenous person that, that has a number of businesses and companies, being able to access um, uh, capital is a nightmare for me. And, and you know, to have the equity and to, to be able to have 
the the types of investments that you need to access money to start businesses under these programs in Canada is very, very difficult for Indigenous folks. And we don't have the legacy of parents that have equity built up in their homes and, and bank accounts and inheritances and et cetera, et cetera. So it is, so it does get complicated in terms of how we start those businesses. So for me, that's a big lingering question. And, and I think, and I trust that the indigenous tourism association of Canada is working on this stuff right now. But, um, I wish I could say to you that it was as simple as just opening up a business and throwing open your doors. You have, you have a, a, a really serious, um, uh, problem of infrastructure on reserves. So, uh, in Winnipeg, you know, there's tons of empty buildings. You can go and rent a storefront and start a business, um, on the reserve. Not so much, you know, there aren't empty storefronts. There aren't, uh, lodges and, and hotels to, to operate out of. So there are a lot of big questions as to how we get there. The model that New Zealand and the Maori have, have provided us is a positive one. How we get there in Canada, I think is still a really big question. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like the systemic issues that are that Indigenous people are facing, like in all areas of life, very much apply to this as well. What you're saying yeah, about like it, lack it, of equity and capital. Ab- absolutely, and and you know, it's uh, for those that are not up on uh, colonialism 101 in Canada. There are answers to breaking down these barriers, and Indigenous people have long had these answers. The foundation of Canada is founded on this reserve system in the Indian Act. And what were reserves? Reserves were pockets of land reserved for the Indians where we would be pushed out of the way, right? Out of sight, out of mind, and and out of earshot of, of these new settler communities. And so usually reserves in First Nations are, you know, pushed away from a main water source, um, pushed, pushed out of you know, uh, like a, a walking distance of a major highway, the Trans-Canada or otherwise, we're pushed, we're pushed far away from the resources. And that was on purpose. Um, that, that was by, d- by design. And so, you know, how we, again, how we end up funding, um, funding these efforts and, and, and how we overcome those barriers, it will be a major question. It will be more expensive to run, um, tourism outfits out of First Nations than it would be to run them out of downtown locations inside of towns or cities across Canada. It just it just will be because the infrastructure question is is so real. And, you know, the, the, the other thing is, is that, the, you know, the Indian Act ensures that it is harder for, for Native people to open businesses, uh, etc., under law, under the Indian Act. And so, you know, there, there are a few big questions that need to be answered there. Um, you know, before we start getting too excited. In terms of indigenous uh, tourism, I think one of the one of the major concerns is the is the green footprint of tourism. And I know that a lot of indigenous tourism uh, outfits today in Canada uh, really consider very carefully how the the green footprint really impacts their territories and communities because you know um the tourism industry is it it leaves a a pretty significant footprint um and and not every indigenous community is is 
position to be able to deal with um, the garbage left behind and, and the types of, of footprint that you, you can potentially see at a, at a, at a historic site or at a, um, a cultural, a significant uh, cultural site. And so I know that that's a big part of the, uh, the conversation when indigenous folks do get together um, uh, to talk about the, the possibility of tourism coming into their territories. Back home uh, where I come from on Rainy Lake, there are um, dozens, if not hundreds of sacred sites uh, on our lake that people would be able to paddle to and visit and take pictures of. Um, but, and, and I have a company, um, the McCoon's media group, um, that, you know, we're embracing tech, the use of technology to map these sites and to tell the story of these sites. And, and during our, some of our initial research and working with communities, um, I was so excited. I thought we had cracked the code. We're going to do AR and VR and, and we're going to put pins on these maps and as you're paddling on your cell phone, your, your phone will ping when you get close and it'll tell you there's a site over here and people then paddle over and then they get to visit the site and there'll be a little video and an explainer and perhaps some audio. And I, I, I was so stoked on this and I, I was like raising money and we had investors and until I talked to the elders and the elders back home said, well, what do you think is going to happen when you have hundreds of people come through here every, every week to come and visit our sacred sites? You know, are they going to desecrate them? Um, are they going to spray paint over them? Are they going to walk on them without knowing? I mean, the petroglyphs in Peterborough, um, for example, uh, have a constant struggle in keeping that site clean because people go there and camp and party and smash bottles. The Manitou AP site here in Manitoba, just by um, Saugeen on the border of Ontario, Manitoba, you know, another petroglyph site, an ancient, ancient sacred site um, that that um, has been carbon dated back to close to 4,500 years ago, um, has the exact same problem. And, and once... Once you tell the world where your sacred sites are, um, that becomes everybody's information. And so it's a real big challenge to figure out for Indigenous folks what to share and what not to share and and what to give to the rest of the world and what to keep for ourselves. And that's a very live conversation. And it's one that I think we have to have if we're going to talk about Indigenous tourism because man, I thought I was going to be a millionaire. I was like, we'll sell the apps and then we're going to license the content to schools and fulfill curriculum requirements and then sell the app for a buck 99 on the app store. I had my retirement planned. I was going to move to Mexico. It was great. Um, until the elders were like, hell no, sit down. We got to talk to you. <laughs> yeah. And you raise a really great point because like all over the globe now we're seeing that over tourism is prevalent and a lot of communities are suffering from this and sites are suffering because they're just overwhelmed and you can't have the expectation like I know in for Canadians most of us like no you pack in you pack out you don't leave anything behind most of us are aware but we can't be sure that people coming from abroad would have that same approach in visiting these places yeah, and and this is where this is where you know politically it gets really interesting when indigenous folks talk about nationhood and how we govern ourselves and how we would really set the parameters for having a a, a, a tourism industry in our territories. And so, 
the number of visitors we got per week or per month could be, you know, we could put a limit on it. We could, we could find a way, uh, to do it. And, and it would take some, it would be a case by case basis, but I think it's a really interesting conversation as, as we look to this industry to really, you know, jumpstart an economic opportunity, uh, here, uh, in our, in our, in our territory. So it's, it's a fascinating conversation and, and really a, a big opportunity. And, but again, it feels like we need to go fast because so many people will want to be a part of it and so many people would want to visit, but if it's worth doing, uh, it's worth doing well. So we have to really slow it down and, and kind of make those considerations. Yeah. In, in my language, we call it Nakanige. And Nakanige is a conceptual word that talks about thinking about what is behind us uh, in order to move forward. And so, and considering all of the implications before making a decision. So it's really about exuding patience and and uh, understanding to work through, you know, all of the questions before you make a decision. And so I know that in my territory in Northwestern Ontario in Treaty 3, um, that's the way we do things there. And it's, you know, as a kid, it was frustrating. I used to say, man, it's like we're 20 or 30 years behind everybody. And that sucks. Um, But my thinking has changed on that. I think that that's in some ways a blessing that we are, that we've taken our time and, and, um, have, have moved a little bit more slowly on some of these things. Mm-hmm. So before there's tourism, we have to lay the proper groundwork. It feels like it. Yeah. 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 Otherwise you get a city like Toronto <laughs> and that city makes no sense. What a mess. Um, yeah. 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 I think, I think just taking good care and, and being mindful of, of the impact of it is, is really, really important. Mm-hmm. And in terms of geography, I know even from my own experience in looking at like, there have been times I've thought, okay, I want to go north. I want to see more of my country and see the things that like a lot of Canadians don't ever venture out to see. But I think from an infrastructure perspective, it's very difficult to get there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I mean, we, I, isn't it like something like, 85% of our population lives within. I think it's like uh, 200 kilometers of the border. Yeah. I was going to say like like 400, but 200 is probably, probably closer. I mean, we we're all just hunkered down, um, on this, this, this border. And, um, above that, I, you know, I still, cause I'm a moose hunter and a fisherman. I, I grew up on, you know, my grandmother's trap line as a kid you know, I basically was born in the bush and, and I'm, I'm always shocked when I meet Canadians that don't have that context. Cause I forget like, oh yeah, not everybody lived that life. Not everybody grew up in a tent, you know? Um, but I can tell you there's so much, there's so much beauty and there's so much to see. And that's where the potential really comes in. Like that's where the, the, for me, the excitement really comes in. And you know, if, if, if I had it my way, I would take a big, long, hard look at our national park system. I would take a big, long, hard look at our provincial park system. All of those parks are stolen land. Indigenous people were in those parks long before anyone else. Uh, they all feature beautiful sight lines and beaches and lakes and rivers. You telling me native people didn't like to go to the beach before y'all got here. We like the beach too. Okay. Uh, and so what I would love to see, you know, rather than us really trying to like, well, how do we get the infrastructure to get a, 
a hotel and resort and this flying community. Well, let's look at let's look at starting with existing infrastructures and let's look at these provincial parks and these national parks and the stories they tell. Now, for example, probably a lot of your listeners will have heard of Banff or at least or maybe even visited Banff. I mean, that park is that is Stony Nakoda, uh, Morley Nakoda uh, land. And those people who guided uh, the first settlers and explorers through there, you know, when you read the history of Banff, you read all these names, there's no goddamn way they survive without the indigenous people that brought them through their own foot trails, their own horse trails. Um, but we don't, we don't see those names. The, the, the streets aren't named after the indigenous folks. They're named after these brave white men that came over and coerce the indigenous folks to take them through. So, I mean, it, it really, um, I, I have this saying that I, I use in my keynotes and, and a lot of the, 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 um, public work that I do, we become the stories we tell ourselves. And I would like for our national park system and our provincial park system to tell better stories and, and to be a little bit more forthcoming about, you know, who was there. And if we start there and start to build out from there, I think we have a rich history that can be shared almost immediately. That wouldn't take decades to do. That wouldn't take uh, um, that wouldn't take a lot of resource. These parks are already beautiful. They are already there. We just have to find a better way to tell the story. And as a storyteller, as a writer, as a comedian, as a filmmaker, a documentarian, you know, I I, I know there are stories there to tell. And that's where I, again I get really excited. And I think that everything's a yes until it's a no in regards to to the tourism context in, in Canada, I think, I think we can do a much better job of telling the story of this country uh, through, through the existing infrastructures we have. Yeah, I think that's a great point that you make. Like, that's a good starting point is to... And the thing is, those places already, I've been to Banff, I've been to Whistler, I find them very... Like, they're just so sterile. They have no culture in them. And I see your point about shifting those places to tell a new story, even just by changing like the names of signs could be a way to insert like more culture and identity to those places. Yeah. When you leave Vancouver and you drive up to Squamish um, and you start seeing signs in the Squamish language, you're like, what the, what the hell are these signs? And you, you see the glottal stops in the language and you're like, oh shit, I'm somewhere else right now. And it and you go to Squamish and the signs are in the language and the the architecture. I mean, indigenous peoples are present there. Yeah. And you go like, well, shit, this is in the middle of a rainforest. Nobody really likes to be up here. <laughs> Why couldn't we do this uh, in other places? And you absolutely can. And I, I think this is where, again, you know, we really have to just create the political will and the good conversations around making these things happen. And and you you know there there's um there are pockets of where it ha- is happening um in Toronto there's an app called the one story app you, it's basically like a walking tour of Toronto an indigenous walking tour that actually started by um by a man named Rodney Bobby Wash who uh, I knew back in the day in Toronto he was a radical radical um indigenous philosopher and political scientist who would do these things called the Great Indian Bus Tours. And Rodney Bobby Wash, you know, you want to talk about Standing Rock or I Don't Know More or anything like that. Bobby Wash was out there doing this by himself long before anyone else was. 
And he basically just started renting a school bus and he would take people out and drive around Toronto and go, oh, uh, Spadina, Ishpadina, you know, this is, this is the road going up the long hill. And he would take you around to different um, parts of Toronto and start naming them and, and telling you what the history was there. Every Canada, every city in Canada has that history and we could do that work. Um, I personally, I, I have a, a, a media company that, that has a project called Stories from the Land, which is looking at how we include VR and AR into our storytelling and how we could sell an application similar to the One Story app that tells these stories that tourists can download um, when they get to Canada so that they could take a walking tour anywhere they are and, and learn those histories. And um, so the potential to embrace um, technology in, in the fight forward in, in resetting this, um, this relationship is also a really exciting one. And I think that it would so enrich Canadian cities even because when I think about Canadian cities, to me, they're kind of boring from a tourist perspective. Right. Well, how can you go to Niagara Falls and never know Indigenous people were there? When it was Indigenous peoples themselves that signed the Treaty of Niagara there. like So the Treaty of Niagara creates Canada. Um, Sir Isaac Brock gets ki- gets killed um by the Americans but it is the Haudenosaunee that that basically saved the war and 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 ensure that Canada is 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 still its own country i mean indigenous people have committed s- so much to the area around Niagara Falls and you can't find indigenous food you can't find an authentic dream catcher you can't find an authentic piece of beadwork around Niagara Falls it's complete it's a completely closed system held by a bunch of gangsters and and it's 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 one of the seven wonders of the world and the indigenous people are locked out of it you can't find indigenous people in Niagara Falls we're we're still fighting we're still fighting and i hate this word and i hate i hate i hate using it but we're still fighting for inclusion you know, we want to be included. We want to be tacked on at the end. Like just the bare minimum is the inclusion. Just include us, please. Um, but for me, you know, and I, I, I sure am biased, but indigenous stories and histories and cultures are, are undeniable. And that's why so many people are attracted to them and, and want to learn more about them, especially now, you know, when it's easier to publish blogs and videos and social media, let's indigenous peoples tell their own stories people are really, really interested and genuinely curious about learning more and, and understanding more and respecting more. And so we just have to do the work to, to make sure that they, they, they hear those stories. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I want to say, I wanted to say it the whole time, thank you for being part of that community of people who are doing that work because I know it's difficult work to have to educate settlers constantly about the history, the real history of this country. Yeah, it sucks, but <laughs> it's like yeah. I would rather do it than make my kids do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. and my kids started doing it. My kid, in, like in grade two, you know, one of my daughters came up and said that, you know, she was being teased for being native, and I, so she had to like, you know, educate her white friends. And it's just like it it begins at that age. It starts in kindergarten, um, and it never ends. And so it's just it's just um, it's a matter of tools. Which tools are you using? Some people go into politics, some people go into law, uh, social services, and some of us are artists. So, you know, it's it's just uh, 
for me right now, it just feels like all hands on deck. We do have an opportunity. People are listening. Um, I recognize that for the first time in, a, in, in probably in, in 200 years, people are listening, really, truly listening to indigenous voices right now. And so it's a, it's my privilege to be a part of it. Uh, truly is. So I have two questions I want to close with. Um, the first is, and this is might be quite obvious, but what can non-Indigenous Canadians do to help and support Indigenous communities um, on the road to improving inclusion? Yeah, well, I think I think um, probably most importantly, non-Indigenous folks should just learn about the history of where they are, where they're from, and you know, every corner of of Canada has a, a powerful indigenous uh, history and context. And I encourage people to learn about the, the history, the indigenous histories of their cities or, or territories that they live in. And, and once they do <laughs> make, <laughs> this is going to sound funny, but I'm serious. Make friends with the native person, man. Talk to us, um, you know, and, 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 and learn and, and listen. And when doing so, be very clear that it, you know, it's not really about your feelings about how guilty or bad you feel about not knowing this stuff, but that it's a journey and it's a, it's, it's a commitment. And if, to, you know, to anyone out there listening, I'm, I'm willing to make that journey with you and, and make the commitment back to you to, to continue the conversation. But, you know, a lot of times people want to be taken care of in that conversation. They want the easy stuff. Give me the easiest don't give me homework. Just give me the, the, like the, the 140 character version of this. Give me the tweet version of this. Um, and so I, I encourage people to really think about where they live and where they come from in that, that context. I encourage people to, to read the reports <clears throat> and all of the material that has been generated in the last 10 or 15 years. There, there are uh, report after report talking about how Canada... Um, can make systemic change and how indigenous peoples can and, and are willing to and, and, and should lead that change. Reports like the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, the Executive Summary of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the 94 Calls to Action from the TRC, the Executive Summary of the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's Inquiry. Those documents you could photocopy at work, don't tell your boss, photocopy the Executive Summary of the TRC, it's about 300 pages. Put it in your shitter. And every morning when you're doing your business, knock off five or six pages. And in a month or so, you will have read the executive summary of the TRC. And you will, you will, the executive summary is as close uh, to a statement of facts as we have in this country. And what we need is a statement of facts so that we can all be working from the same fundamental place and, and, and build a foundation to talk from and, and to understand each other from, and, and that work exists. And for me, it's, it, we can't, we can't claim ignorance anymore. Not, not in 2019. There's too much material, too much work has been done. We know too much to go back. So we have to keep, we have to keep it moving. And, um, that, th those are two things I would say. Yeah, I absolutely agree about, um, people have a responsibility, I feel, to educate themselves and to do a little bit of work because it is too easy now. It's very hard to go throughout life and not know a single thing about this issue. So my, the second part, I guess, of this question is, what would you say tourists can do 
if they're coming to Canada, how can they find ways to educate themselves um, about Canadian history and Indigenous history? Yeah, for, for well, for any tourists, I, I would say I would say uh, the exact same thing that, that I just said, and, and it's a bit of a cop out. But um, if there is one piece of reading you would like to do about Canada before you come, the executive summary of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission is a fascinating read. It, it reads like a like a, a history textbook. Um, there's a lot of data and a lot of statistics in there, but it really is a statement of facts for Canada. And it tells us how we got here. You understand that 1996, the final residential school closed in this country. You understand, um, you know, the intergenerational effects of residential school. You can put into context why you hear about Indigenous poverty, but maybe don't understand it. And so for me, the executive summary of the TRC is, is, um, is a profound document. If you're looking to learn more about Canada before you come. When getting here, I would say, you know, do again, do your best to be curious about and, and ask around where where the indigenous village sites may have been, where where the, you know, the craft store or where the uh, uh, museum perhaps uh, is. There, there are pockets in this country where there those those things already exist um, and, and you can find them. But yeah, be diligent. If it says made in China we didn't make it so don't buy it yeah <laughs> i was gonna say um i'll put together a list for the show notes of indigenous owned restaurants in toronto because there's quite a few here now yeah and they're worth yeah, there's, visiting there's they're a amazing. big indigenous foods movement yeah. which is really exciting yeah um yeah so thank you so much ryan for joining us today yeah well i want to say thank you uh again and you know this is um this is a conversation I think is, is, is really, really important. Um, and, and I, I really believe, um, tourism will be a big, um, a, a big economic game changer for indigenous peoples in the very, very near future. Um, how we get there and when we get there, you know, obviously up for discussion, but, um, I'm really excited to finally get to the day where, we can start inviting our friends from around the world to come and hear us and to see us and to, to sit and eat with us. So uh, when we get there, there will be food, there will be song, there will be dance, um, and it will be beautiful. So uh, I'm really looking forward to, uh, to sharing all of the rich culture and the diversity um, that, that is here uh, in this place that we call Canada. This podcast is produced by Katie Lohr and written and hosted by me, Erin Hines. Now, Alpaca Pals, we want to hear from you. Tell us your thoughts, your feelings. Send us a rant about something we said that pissed you off or something that you agreed with. To do this, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at at alpacamybagspod. Or you can join our Facebook group, Alpaca Your Bags. You can also drop us an email at hello at alpacamybags.ca. So if you dig us, please review the podcast and remember to subscribe while you're at it. Tune in every other Wednesday for more episodes and I hope you all get to alpaca your bags soon. See you next time.